We are back with part two of sterilizing, disinfecting, and decontaminating. Which one when? In the first episode, we detangled the different terms and what each one means, how they should be classified, and all the rest of it. If you have not listened yet, I would strongly encourage you to listen to episode 12 prior to this one to get a better background understanding of the concepts. In this episode, we will be delving deeper into environmental decontamination. Hello there, this is Microbe Mail, and I am your host, Vindana Chibabai. I am so happy to have Dr. Tina Thomas join me again for this follow-up episode. Tina is a clinical microbiologist with expertise in the infection prevention and control space, and she is based at the Infection Control Laboratory Services at the University of the Witwatersrand Medical School. Welcome back to Microbe Mail, Tina. Are you ready to do some more cleaning up? Yes, Vin, all ready to get going. Awesome. Remember to subscribe to Microbe Mail on our website, follow us on social media, share the Microbe Mail love. We're available on all podcast platforms anywhere in the world, and you can also rate us either on podchaser.com or by following the rating link um, in the show notes. All of our other links are also available in the show notes. Hospital settings have a color coding system for cleaning. I wonder if most healthcare workers are aware of this. Tina, can you elaborate on this? Sure. The hospital ward area is divided into different color zones, and this is based on the risk of acquiring infections in the different areas. The different color zones ensure that dedicated cleaning equipment is used per zone and not shared amongst the zones so that there is no transfer of microorganisms across areas. So the order of the zones with the least risk of acquiring infections to the most are the green zone, which covers ward offices, reception desk, passages, tea rooms, and visitor waiting areas. The blue zone, this covers the general ward areas. The yellow zone covers all isolation cubicles. And finally, the red zone includes all patient bathrooms and toilets. It is also vital to stress that each isolation cubicle should have their own dedicated cleaning equipment and not be shared between all of the isolation cubicles. So this makes sense. It's almost as if saying the green zone is the safe zone and the closer you get to red, the more risky it is for transmission of pathogens, basically. Absolutely. Correct. So a question that seems almost too simple and straightforward to ask is, what equipment is needed for cleaning, but to be honest, in low-resource settings, this might not be as apparent. Yes, Vin, you're right. But also, even in instances where the information is known, the correct cleaning equipment and amounts required are compromised. Often the reason given for this is lack of funds to purchase the equipment. However, as we all know, we cannot put a price on our patient's health. So, Color-coded mops and cloths for each zone and isolation cubicle are required. In addition, a double bucket system is required to carry the soapy water and clean water separately for the cleaning of floors. And this is the equipment that's required. Okay, so I mean that sounds also quite self-explanatory and pretty easy to understand. Can you talk us through this concept of a two-step cleaning process? 
As we mentioned in the first series, prior cleaning of an environment is mandatory before any disinfection process. This is referred to as the two-step cleaning process. That is, clean first with a detergent-based solution to remove organic and inorganic matter, then disinfect with the disinfectant of choice. Okay, so now can you please talk about the disinfectants that are used for environmental cleaning in the healthcare setting? So these can be divided into touch or no-touch methods. In the touch methods or methods that require the cleaner to physically apply the disinfectant to the surface, the most common disinfectant used is hypochlorite solution in our setting. Yes. This is because this product is cheap and easy to prepare in the hospitals. In the no-touch methods, use of UVC radiation or hydrogen peroxide in vapor or aerosol forms can be used. These methods tend to be more expensive than the use of hypochlorite solution mm -hmm. and are utilized in unoccupied rooms before admission of a new patient. Okay. However, these methods require no hands-on time, as the name suggests, and the decontamination efficacy of these methods are more consistent over time than that of manual methods, which is cleaner-dependent. So, Tina, there's also several guidelines that exist and numerous studies conducted which focus on the concentration of the product needed. And I know you and I have also had these discussions many times before. So I know these also differ for different pathogens. Can you, con can you simplify some of these concepts for our listeners? Sure, then I'll try and do so. So with the hypochlorite solution, there are three concentrations to keep in mind, which will cover most healthcare-associated infections. The 500 ppm or parts per million or the 0.05% hypochlorite solution, which is exactly the same. Is that the same concentration in a different conversion? Absolutely. So 500 ppm is equivalent to 0.05% of hypochlorite solution. Got it. And this offers intermediate level disinfection and will inactivate almost all healthcare-associated pathogens. And what I mean by these are the escape pathogens. Um, this concentration is therefore used in most of our institutions for environmental cleaning. However, for specific pathogens, a higher concentration of the hypochlorite solution will be required, such as for inactivation of C. auris or Candida auris, 1,000 ppm or 0.1% is required, mm -hmm. and for Clostridium difficile, 5,000 ppm or 0.5% of hypochlorite solution is required. The higher concentration of the solution in Clostridium difficile is required to kill off the spores. With regards to the no-touch methods, the UVC radiation is mutagenic to most microorganisms at wavelengths of 250 to 280 nanometers and consequently kills them. The aerosolized or vaporized hydrogen peroxide concentrations range between 3 to 30% for um, the different methods. However, for both no-touch methodologies, it is important to look at the commercial product validation studies to assess the pathogens that were inactivated to understand their levels of disinfection. So I think that's a really important point that you raised there, Tina, is that for you can't really look at everything as a whole. You have to say 
has this particular product been validated for the various pathogens and what is that list of pathogens? Yes. So then finally, there's also the issue of daily cleaning versus terminal cleaning, right? Yes, Vin. It is important to understand the difference in cleaning that occurs in both settings, um, particularly for our healthcare workers. So in daily ward cleaning, only the high-touch surfaces around the patient are cleaned using the two-step cleaning process. The high-touch surfaces include the patient bed rails, side table, foot table, drip stand, ventilator, and so forth. Terminal cleaning, on the other hand, refers to the cleaning of the environment once the patient has left the area, either due to a transfer out, discharge, or death. And in this setting, an elaborate cleaning process occurs. All reusable equipment and items are cleaned by the two-step process and taken one at a time out of the room. Once the room is completely empty, a floor-to-ceiling scrub-down takes place. Mm -hmm. This involves removal of any posters on the walls and curtains used in the room to ensure a thorough cleaning and disinfection process. It is important to take note that none of the previous patient's items should be found in a terminally cleaned room or ward area. That's actually quite a helpful tip that you've given there. Um, So if you see anything remaining from the previous patient's um, admission, that should kind of raise alarm bells that proper terminal disinfection and terminal cleaning wasn't performed. That's right. Or if you still see posters on the walls hanging. Yeah, I mean, we don't often think that, you know, the posters and all of that needs to be taken down, but that's a really valid point. So thanks for bringing that up. So, Tina, we're going to move to our spotlight feature for this episode. (laughs) Since we've already heard a mini microbe message with you, you and I are going to have to play a game for this episode. What do you think? Okay, let's do it. (laughs) So we're going to play, is it pseudo or is it a pseudo-pseudo? Did you know that the genus Pseudomonas currently contains 144 species? Wow. No, I was not aware of that. I didn't either. This actually makes it the genus of the gram-negative bacteria with the largest number of species. Oh, wow. So we also know the term pseudo in the English language means something that's basically fake or a sham. So in this game, I'm going to give you three Pseudomonas species names. And one of them is going to be a pseudonym rather than a pseudo's name. Are you ready? Yes, let's do it. Okay, great. As always, Tina, if you win the game, we name a microbe after you and you're obliged to use it. Okay, Okay, here we go. The first one is Pseudomonas putida. The second is Pseudomonas japonica. And the third one is Pseudomonas africanus. Um, I'm obliged to think it's Pseudomonas africanus. Well done. <laughs> was it a bit too obvious, Tina? <laughs> I think I think it, we would have known about it if we it, would have if, 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 if there was a species living in, in Africa. Africa. <laughs> we would have known if there was an africanus. Absolutely, Putida we see quite often in the lab. Yes, You've yes, seen that's it Japonica, I have never come across. Have you? No, I haven't. It was actually a guess between the two. The two. (laughs) Okay, excellent. Well done. So from henceforth, your new microbe male name is Tinarella Thomas and I. Nice. I like the ring of that. Thank you. Does it sound pathogenic or do you think it's 
fairly avirulent. Well, I, I would like to stay avirulent in the current setting. That's true. <laughs> Tina, I learned so much from you during these two episodes. Thank you so much for joining me. I hope you'll be able to join me again sometime soon on Microbe Mail. Absolutely, when, when it will be my pleasure. I hope the Micro Mail followers grow in leaps and bounds since these podcasts are so useful. I also listen to them all the time. Beats reading through various textbooks and guideline documents. It is valuable and practical, practically applicable information provided at the click of a link. Thanks so much, Tina. So before you go, please remember to click on the form in the show notes to rate this episode from amazing to awful. We'd love to have any other additional feedback you have by email or even on social media. That's it from me, Vin, your microbe messenger. See you again soon with more Contagious Mail.